Chapter Four of Dwellers in the Hills by Melville Davison Post. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Four, concerning Hawk Roof. Old wise men, in esoteric idiom, unintelligible to the vulgar, have endeavored to write down in books how the human mind works in its house, and I believe they have not succeeded very well. They have broken into this house when it was empty and labor to decipher the mystic hieroglyphics written on its walls, and learn to what uses the departed craftsmen put the strange, delicate implements which they found fastened so primly in their places. They have got at but little, as I have heard them say, deploring the brevity of life and the tremendous magnitude of the labor. The learned, as one put it, had barely time to explain to his successor that he had found the problem unsolvable. I think they might as well have gone about tracking the rainbow, for all they have learned of this mysterious business. In fewer moments than a singing maid takes to double back on her chorus, I had forgotten all about the ghost. I was sitting idly in the saddle now, with the rein over my wrist. Jordan's message from my brother had given enough to think of. I knew that Ward, in the preceding autumn, had bought the cattle of two great graziers south of the Valley River, to be taken up during the October month, but I did not know that on a summer afternoon he had sold these cattle to Woodford, binding himself to deliver them within three days after they were demanded. The trade was fair enough when the two had made it, but now the price of beef cattle was off almost thirty dollars a bullock, and Woodford was in a position to lose more money than his bald-faced cattle horse could carry in a sack. He had waited all along hoping for the tide to turn. Suddenly, today he had demanded his cattle. Today, when Ward was on his back and the cattle far to the south across the Valley River. It was the contract, and he had the right to do it, but it was like Woodford. Ward, helpless in his bed, had sent Jordan and Red Mike to find us somewhere over the Golney and bid us bring up the cattle if we could, and so the old man had ridden as though the devil were after him. The proportions of Woodford's plan outlined slowly and with it came a sense of tremendous responsibility. If we carried out the contract to the letter, and to the letter it must be with this man, I knew that Woodford would meet the loss, if it stripped the coat off his shoulders, meet it with a smile and some swaggering comment. And I knew as well that, if by any hook or crook he could prevent the contract from being carried out, he would do it with the devil's cleverness. Only, I knew that the hand of Woodford would never rise against us in the open. We might be balked by sudden providences of God, planned shrewdly like those which a great churchman ruling France sometimes called to his elbow. For such gentle business, not all Richelieu was better fitted with a set of errant scoundrels. There was the cunning right hand of Hawk Roof, the slick, villainous intriguer Lem Marks. No diplomatic imp, serving his master in the kingdoms of the world, moved with more unscrupulous smoothness. There was Malin with his club foot, owned by the devil, the drover said, and leased to Woodford for a lifetime. And there was Parson Peppers, singing the hymns of the Lord up the stone-coal and down the stone-coal. As stout a bunch of rogues as ever went trooping to the eternal bonfire. Handy gentleman to his worship, Woodford." It was preposterous overmatching for a child. Hawk Roof had laughed well when I heard him laughing last. If Ward were only back in the saddle of the Black Abbot, 
but he was stretched out over yonder with the night shining through his window, and there was on the turning world no one but me to strip to this duel. Still, I had better horses, and perhaps better men than Woodford. Judd was one of the strongest men in the hills, afraid of the dead, as I have written, but not afraid of any living thing on the face of the earth. They knew this over the stone coal. The club-footed giant, Malin, had a lot of scars under his shirt that were not borne on him. And there was Ump, a crooked thing of a man truly, but a crooked thing of a man that would hobnob with the king of all the fields, banter for banter, and whose breast cowardice was as dead as Judas. I looked down at the humble giant, shamefaced in the moonlight, tying his broken bridle reins back in their rings, and drawing the knots tight with his bronzed fingers that looked like the coupling pins of a cart, and then at the hunchback doubled up in his saddle. Maybe, and my blood began to rise with it, maybe when we looked close the odds were not so terrible after all. Here was bone and sinew tougher than Malin's, and such cunning as might cry Mark's a merrier run than he had gone for many a day. Then, as by some sharp turn, I caught a new light on the two hours already gone. Man alive! If we had been in the game for all of those two blessed hours, with our eyes sealed up tight as the lid of a jar. How high was the Golney? I almost shouted, pointing my finger at Red Mike. Midsides, answered Jordan, turning in his saddle. Midsides, I echoed. And the logs? Was it running logs? Nothing but brush and a few old rails. You can see the watermark on Red Mike, right here at the bottom of the saddle skirt. And the old man reached down and put his finger on the smoking horse. The Golney ain't up to stop nothing. I clapped my teeth together. So much for the solicitous care of Hawk Roof. If we had gone by the Hacker's Creek Road, we should have missed Jordan and lost the good half of a day. Woodford knew that Ward would send by the shortest road. It was the first gleam of the wolf-tooth shining for a moment behind the woolly face of the sheepskin. I looked down at Ump. The hunchback put his elbow on the horn of his saddle and rested his jaw in the hollow of his hand. "'Old Granny Lanham,' he said, "'her that's buried back on the Dolan Knob, "'used to say that God saw for the little pup when it was blind. "'But after that it was the little pup's business, "'and I reckon she knowed what she said.' "'Wiser heads than mine have pondered that problem "'since the world began its swinging, "'but with greater eloquence.' but scarcely more clearly than Ump had put it. Old Liza used to tell me, when I was very little, that if I fought with those who were smaller than myself, I was fighting the wards of the Father in Heaven, and it was a lot better to get a broken head from some sturdy urchin who was big enough to look out for himself. And I have always thought that old Liza was about as close to the ruler of events as any one of us is likely to get. Anyway, I doubted not that if the good God rode in the hills, he was far from stirrup by stirrup with Woodford. Red Mike was beginning to shiver in his wet coat, and Jordan gathered up his reins. Mr. Ward, he said, told me to tell you to stay with old Simon Betts tonight and get an early start in the morning. Then he rode away, and we watched him disappear in the hollow out of which he had come carrying so much terror. 
We were a sobered three as we turned back into the woods. Ghosts and all the rumors of ghosts have fled to the chimney-corners. No witch rode, and there walked no spirit from among the dead. Above us the oaks knitted their fantastic tops, but it made no fairy arch for the dancing minions of Queen Mab. The thicket sang, but with the living voices of the good crickets, and the owl yelled again, diving across the road, but his piping notes had lost their eerie treble. There is something in the creak of saddle-leather that has a way of putting heart in a man. To hear the hogskin rubbing its yellow elbows is a good sound. It means action. It means being on the way. It means that all the idle talking, planning, doubting is over and done with. Sir Hubert has cut it short with an oath and a blow of his clenched hand that made the glasses rattle, and every swaggering cutthroat has his foot in the stirrup. It is good, too, when one feels the horse holding his bit as a man might hold a child by the fingers. No slave this, but a great ally, leading the way up into the enemy's country. Out of the road, weakling. We traveled slowly back toward the stone coal. Far away a candle in some driver's window twinkled for a moment and was shut out by the trees. In the lowland a fog was rising, a climbing veil of grey that seemed to feel its path along the sloping hillside. I heard the boom of the stone coal tumbling over the welts in its bedding as we turned down toward the old alestock mill. The clouds had packed together in the sky, and the moon dipped in and out like a bobbin. As we swept into the turnpike by the long ford, Ump stopped and, tossing his rein to Judd, slipped down into the road. El Mahdi stopped by the cardinal. When I looked, the hunchback was on his knees. "'What are you doing?' I said. Ump laughed. "'I'm looking for hawks' feathers. Where they fly thick, there ought to be feathers.' He nosed around on the road for some minutes like a dog, and then disappeared over the bank into the willow bushes. The stone coal lay like a sheet of silver, broken into long hissing ridges, where it went driving over the rugged strata. On the other side, the Hacker's Creek Road lifted out of the ford and went trailing away through the hills. In the moonlight it was a giant's ribbon. I had no idea of what Ump was up to, but I should learn no earlier by a volley of questions, so I thrust my hands into my pockets and waited. Presently he came, clambering up the bank, and got into his saddle. "'Well,' I said, "'did you find any feathers?' "'I did,' he answered. "'Fresh ones from the meanest bird of the flock, and he's flying low. I think that first turn into the stone coal fooled him, but we will know better by midnight.' Then I understood it was horse-tracks he had been looking for. "'How long do you know he's trailing us?' I asked. Quiller, he answered. When come and fetch it rides up and down, he's looking for something, and I reckon we are about ready to be looked for. We were clattering up the turnpike when Ump was speaking. All at once, rising out of the far-away hills, I heard a voice begin to beller. They put John on the island, fare ye well, fare ye well, and they put him there to starve him, fare ye well, fare ye well. It was Parson Peppers, and of his reverence be it said that no brother of the coast, 
rollicking drunk on a dead man's chest, ever owned a finer bellow. I turned around in my saddle. Peppers, I cried. Man alive! How did you know that it was the old bellwether's horse? Ump chuckled. <laughs> I saw her shod once. A number six shoe and a toe piece. End of chapter four.